Allow me to start off with a question. Um, have you ever, ever thought about what type of God you would like to have? What type of God you would like to have? And this is a question for both unbelievers and believers alike. Sort of like, think about it, like if you could like build a bear, our own God, our own Lord, and our own King, what elements, uh, what rules, what attributes would you desire that being to have? You know, I want my God this way. No, I want my God that way. You know, must be all love. Everybody wants a God of love. Or my God must be all affirming. My God must be all accepting and obliging. See, my God must, this God I want to create, must answer all of my requests and demand none. I did a simple Google search, which is very risky, but one of my favorite things to do with these type of things. And I put in the exact question, create, or how do I create my own God? And I found out how to create your own God in 10 easy steps. Thank you, wikihow.com. And it has basic steps like write your own rules for God. It has basic steps like describe the place of worship for this God. Make your own holidays for this God, like Merry Fritzmas, everybody, or something along those lines. But number one for this list in creating your own God was describe the people who would worship this God and King. Describe the people who would want this type of God. And thinking about that, I thought it was just very exposing. I thought us creating our own God and our own mind, just the thought of that. What our flesh may want to add here or build a bear there or Frankenstein here and there. I thought it was exposing about what type of people we are, our needs, or needs that we may have in the creating of who we desire to have an authority over us. Clearly, this is something we hear about quite often these days. I was just thinking in the political race for the White House. Now, I'm not trying to be political, but if you think about it, you, we hear constantly, if this person wins, I'm moving to Canada. Lorenzo, right? You'd be pumped, dude. <laughs> Canada. He's from Canada. All right. Or if this person wins, you know, I'll revolt. Not sure what that means, but I'll revolt. Why? Because it's not an authority of our own liking or our own making. They're not kings and queens of our choosing. So it's obvious as we talk about kings and queens or that sort of understanding, I mean, it's this type of thing that, I mean, the royal government is not something we think about a lot as Americans, Right? I mean, that idea, and I've used that word a bunch, so I want to just make sure I define it or understand it. I mean, that idea is out of date. Kings and queens and royalty is foreign to us. It's foreign to think about kings and crowns and thrones. But even though, in my opinion, it seems distant, in all actuality, it's actually quite um, familiar to us. For one, we love the idea of kings and royalty, Right? I think the majority of us love the idea of kings and royalty. And if you don't believe that, do a search about how many people tuned in for the royal wedding. It's billions upon billions. It's outrageous. But there's something special to us. There's something nostalgic for us about the tales of old. About, you know, think about the stories like Camelot and Robin Hood or Tolkien's classic, The Lord of the Rings, or even modern day tellings like Game of Thrones. Something about it to us is near to our thoughts and to our hearts. 
Yes, it's distant in our government, but to define our understanding of thrones and kings is to then realize it's actually nearer to our hearts than we maybe thought. See, a throne, a throne simply is an elevated seat of power. A king is someone who has authority and reign and influence over our lives. And if that's the case, then there are many kings we enthrone on a day-by-day basis. To think about the great and insane city we live in, Los Angeles, it's almost too easy to describe the kings who reign here. If we could name just a few kings of Los Angeles, I think clearly beauty would be one. Beauty would have to be one. If New York is power and education, education and investment, we don't care about any of that. What do we care about? Oh, well, how good did he look? Did he roll the bottom of his pants sleeve things up? What, he had a top button? How good did he look? I'd say another king for us is sexuality. That is the, the sin of our city. And I'd say lastly, another king for Los Angeles would be spirituality. These type of things greatly influence our city. And see, the more west you go to our area, again, we do see things like power and investment and finance and education start to rise. But what I'd like to do right now is to take this simple question that we've just been comparing to the city and talk about it for our own lives. To ask you in this moment, who or what has shaped your life? What king has done the most influencing over you? What is, who is sitting on that, that elevated seat? Is it a king or a god of your own making or choosing? Because whatever it is, whatever that is, is what profoundly shapes how we live. Whatever it is, profoundly shapes how you live, how you think, how you do. And today we'll see how for the most part, if that king is affirmed on the throne of our lives, then we have happiness, right? That one thing we want or is leading us is affirmed, we have happiness. But if it is threatened, there's fear and anxiety and panic. Thus the need to discover what shapes us today. Because again, I believe we are a culture, society, whatever, that so easily hops from Lord to Lord, gratification to gratification, God to God, king to king. Deifying whatever will affirm our choices. No, no, that, that. No, 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 that, that. Deifying it. Whatever will answer our request, whatever will gratify. So maybe with all of that saying, maybe it's safe to assume that is why some of you are, are here today. Other kings in your lives have risen and fallen, and you, like yourself, have seen thrones rise and produce happiness. But then over time, and ultimately, they will produce despair and fear and anxiety and worry and panic. So if you're not a Christian here, you don't believe in the Bible, and you're wondering, what about this God of the Bible? Could he possibly be this king for me? Everything else has failed me. Friends, allow me to say it up front and reveal it over our time together tonight. If we read the Bible with eyes wide open, it shows us how the king of the Bible doesn't affirm our autonomy or short-lived gratification. The king of the Bible threatens them. 
And tonight, for, for some, I want to introduce for the very first time, I want to introduce you to this king in all of his splendor and all of his glory. And for others, I want to challenge the Christians who may have allowed other kings to rise and overshadow or sit in the throne of the very king the Bible speaks of, who are we to, to be worshiping or thinking or adoring? So with that, I want to tell a story. And actually, it's Paul's story from Acts chapter 13, but it's the tale of four kings. First, let me set up the scene. If you remember, do you guys remember, if you were here last week, if you've been with us in Acts, the church has consciously chosen for the first time to send men out, to send people out to preach of Jesus to send people out to go out and tell the world, to live in such a way, to preach, to evangelize, and to minister and testify of Jesus. Verse 13, if you want to read along. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And more on John Mark leaving in weeks to come. Verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch, Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So these guys are traveling fools. They are sailing everywhere. They have their Sperry boat shoes on. They are sailing everywhere. Ethan, right? There you go, buddy. They're everywhere. And they sail to, sailing to Cyprus, to Asian Minor, to the northwards, to Antioch. They've traveled 1,200 miles across the Mediterranean. 1,200 miles. Now, don't be confused. We've spent many weeks talking about Antioch. This is a different Antioch. This is different. And it's here that they show up. There's tons of Antiochs back then, tons. This is a different one. And it's here on the Sabbath day on a Saturday where the people are gathering like this in the synagogue where the, those of Jewish descent and some Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish, would gather to worship. Again, much like this. And they would hear the reading and the instructions of God's word. Again, much like we're doing now. You can see how history has informed the way we do things when it comes to, to church or Christianity, to faith. So this is why we gather. We gather for the importance in the preaching of God's word. And I've talked to many of you, and I have the same experience. That if I miss the preaching of God's word, it leaves me, and I know I've heard it from you, it can leave us vulnerable. It leaves us vulnerable if we go without hearing the preaching of God's word. It's why we stress faithfulness. We stress faithfulness because we know how good it is for the soul. Anyway, and as Paul and Barney are sitting there, so imagine this, it's a room just like this. They go through their little things, their shindig that they do. And then the leader of the synagogue sees these two men. And he walks over, look at verse 15. It's at the end of their gathering. After the reading from the law and prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. <laughs> I don't know if that was a good idea. Verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, whatever he did, he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Listen. Listen to me. And Paul proceeds to tell the story that we are going to hear tonight. And Paul begins with a very always attractive way to people. The history of their nation. The history of them. Paul starts with a familiar tale, a tale of kings. And the first king Paul starts with is the rejected 
king. The first king is the rejected king. Verse 17, read along with me, only a few verses. The God of this people. So he stood up. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put them up with them. In the, he put up with them. Did you guys notice that? He put up with them in the wilderness for about 40 years. Man, I put up with them. Verse 19. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. I'm going to share with you a very vulnerable story. If you don't know this about me, and you'll see where I'm going with it. If you don't know this about me, I'm a jerk. I'm a big jerk. At least I, I think I saw you nodding your head. Yes, I'm pretty sure I saw this. Amen. Mm. Preach it. I hope, I hope I have come a long way. And if some think I haven't, that's cool. But if anybody were to ask me in high school, if Casey was a jerk, you would get a roaring, oh mama, yes. And I'll never forget when I would date a girl, I didn't know how to break it off. Nobody showed me, here's how you break up. Nobody taught me that. And I didn't like the awkwardness of ending a relationship. So if I was just over a relationship, I just ignore them. I wouldn't tell them. So I'd date this girl for six months and one day, stop talking to them. I was a jerk. So technically, I've never officially broken up with anybody. <laughs> Wife. <laughs> but all that to say is I remember senior year, this really nice girl who was my friend, like all four years of high school, she was my friend, and she asked me to prom, and she baked me like homemade cookies in this bag with like this really sweet little poem note thing. And I didn't know how to reject her. I don't know how to blow her off because I ain't going to no prom ever. I was against prom. So I ate the cookies, and then, I, and then I didn't talk to her for the rest of the year. Caitlin, if you're listening to the podcast, forgive me. But I was a harsh and dumb, rejecting jerk. I was a horrible person in high school. But none of my rejection, none of what I just described for poor Caitlin or any of those poor girls who had to put up with me, None of them have gone through what the rejected king has gone through. So if you know anything of the history of Israel, of God's chosen people, the first king of Israel was not Saul. Oh no, that's, that's, it wasn't Saul. It was God. The very first king of Israel was God. The nation of Israel wasn't a democracy or whatever else. It was the only nation that was a theocracy. A nation ruled under God as king, and it was the only one of its kind. A nation that had God fighting for them, rescuing them, delivering them, pursuing them, caring for them, loving them, leading them, feeding them. God had never, never once failed them, never hurt them, never betrayed them or forgotten them or crushed them. And Paul makes this very clear as he brings up the story in Exodus where God delivers the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. If you guys know the story, it's very famous and gives the law. He establishes in those moments, he goes, I am your king. In a very real sense, the contest with Pharaoh, again, in the Exodus narrative, is between one king and another. 
See, no other nation had a king like this. This story breaks my heart. So what do they do? Look at verse 21. They asked for a king. Oh, I don't know why that story bothers me so much. They asked for a king. Like a spouse who asks for a divorce and says, no, no, it's not me, it's all you. They wanted a new king to be like all the other nations, like a kid who wants Air Jordans because all the other kids in the schoolyard have them. No, mommy, buy me those shoes. I want to fit in. 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the story happens in its full, says it like this. God tells Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. God is the rejected king of Israel. God's cookies are devoured and he is ignored and pushed out. There are only a few more devastating narratives within the very Bibles you are holding. Simply for this, this nation, God no longer fit their mold. For these people, God did not jive. God did not suffice their deepest desire for life. God, you're not being this to me. So if you could just scooch over, we're all guilty of this, of rejecting the most beautiful, fulfilling king there ever was. And get this, get this. God of the universe, rejected by people he loves the most, God of the universe rejected, what does he do? Does he call down black lightning and ninja angels and slaughter them? Oh, far from it. It's again heartbreaking. He grants their request. He grants their request. Those here who are both Christian and unchristian know this about God. He accepts your rejection. God accepts rejection. The book of Numbers in the Old Testament says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Let's keep reading as we see what happens with this rejection. Verse 21, Paul's still going. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So now Paul introduces the rotten king. Saul was a, 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 a whitewashed tomb of a man. He is like a high-gloss coffin filled with rotting bones. Saul is super flashy. Saul is the next best thing. He is, he is hot, and he is sexy, and he, and, and he is just this gorgeous beast of a man, and he's big, and he's brawny. He, like, he's the brawny towel man. I mean, he's all those things. And yet, on the inside, Saul is starting and is and will decay. See, Friends, we are guilty of this exact offense. Trading kings for something flashier, trading kings that you know fits our perceived needs, like trading gods like they're like boys on the school player with baseball cards. See, rejecting God, rejecting God for an upgrade of living, rejecting God for a newer model of theology. God, you are outdated. See, choosing new king after new king that fits my appetite, my desires, friends, or the danger 
of living under rotten kings, decaying kings. Church, these are stone-hard lessons that God allows us to learn. God allows us to learn in the decision and moments of our life. So yes, God receives rejections and God allows us to feel like the sting of its ramifications, but the rejected king will not allow rotten kings to destroy his people. Look at verse 22. And when he had removed him, and when he had removed him, the rotten king, God will surgically cut out the rotten. He raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. Now, Paul, as he continues to tell their history, he introduces now the great and beloved remembered king. Third is the remembered king, King David, whose resume, if you guys know the stories of Bible, his resume reads like what? Giant killer and bear wrestler and psalm writer and humble shepherd. Basically, David's awesome. David, everybody wants to be friends with David. He's incredible. Now, the remembered king uncovers, though, a different influence, um, an influence of a different kind. It's what the king of, that King David does. See, for these synagogue dwellers, you got to remember, for these people at that moment, King David is the cream of the crop. King David is the cream of the crop. King David was the king of rock. There was none higher. King David was all of the rage. In Israel's history, there was no leader like David. His name appears more times in Scripture than any other king. He's even mentioned in the last chapter of the Bible. He is the Old Testament pinnacle of kings. But David's greatest purpose was not lands conquered and lives saved. It was his blood. David's greatest purpose was his blood. Look at verse 23. Of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. See, as mighty as David was, he was a mere shadow to the mountain of his offspring. So remember, remember the setting that this is being set in. Think about the moment where Paul says these words. This is extremely scandalous. This is very offensive. Do we see what Paul the preacher man is doing? He was asked to come and give an encouraging word, say something that would encourage us. And he dethrones David before their very eyes and says his entire existence is for another. No, 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 not David. His offspring, Jesus. You, you remember Jesus, right? Jesus, by most church Jewish leaders, was the one that you sought to exterminate. He was the one that you, Jewish church leaders, sought to execute. That one was the purpose of David. Scandalous, scandalous, scandalous. Look at verse 28. And though they found in him, Paul says, about Jesus, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, 
they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Again, Paul is saying, all you do is remember King David. You stuck in the past unknowing hypocrites. All you do is live in the past. All you do is come halfway. See, it's like you're obsessed with a movie trailer but won't go see a movie. It's like you love eating cookie dough but will not bake it. It's like you go to Universal Studios but don't go to Hogwarts. Scandalous. That's what they're saying. Paul's like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. David is Israel's greatest king, but he, like all kings, still leaves us yearning. He leaves us yearning. And Paul very boldly offends them. He offends them by telling them Jesus is the climax of your history and of your present and future. King Jesus is the climax of all biblical history. Look at verse 27. This is, this is also offensive. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him uh, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So basically, it's like you could not understand something that we've been saying every week. Fulfilled them, in, fulfilled them by condemning him. See, the point, again, even though you've missed it, Paul's saying, is that if you meet God, know God, and hear this, this is for us. The point is if we meet God, know God, trust God, and are shaped by God as he truly reveals himself and his ways in the whole of the New Testament, then we will see Jesus as king, the final king, the one true king, the redeemer king. So allow me to apply this to us to another level. This is what I want to kind of hit home and how this makes sense from the remembered King David to the Redeemer King Jesus. Knowing the Bible, reading the Bible, going to church, serving at a church, having Christian parents, having a Christian spouse, attending seminary, or have gone to a Christian high school, thinking God is awesome and all-loving means nothing. It means nothing for our faith if Christ is not acknowledged as king over our lives. It comes down to the brass tacks of King Jesus. Preacher and pastor Charles Spurgeon says, if you are content with merely reading or hearing the scriptures and do not come to Christ himself, you stop short of salvation. You stay in a position where you may be culpable of the grossest sin, as were these people at Antioch and Pisidia. To see Jesus as the entire point, just as John the Baptist did when he so humbly said in verse 25, behold, after, more, after me one is coming, the sandals whose feet I'm not even worthy to untie. I had a talk with a woman last Thursday and she informed me that she was a spiritualist. And I've had many talks of people who are spiritualists. I love talking to people who are spiritualists in LA. I love it. And so I said, okay, wow. Can you tell me what that means? I would love to know what that means. And then she proceeded to tell me that she took the best 
of the spiritual realities from every great major religion. And from Christianity, she took and rattled off things like love, be kind, turn cheeks, be grace-filled, live rightly. She went down this list and I said, yeah, those are great things. Essentially, she removed the Redeemer King. She, She liked so much of it, but removed Jesus and made religion. She shoveled in morality. Friends, to remove the Redeemer King, to remember and feed off the days of old, or to feed off our parents, our parents' faith, or an old church back in the day, or I was baptized at age two, and yeah, whatever. To feed off those days is to run to the hills that we would see here with King David of just playing cards of morality or possibly religion. To read the Bible and to remove Jesus, here's a giant, disgusting book of religion. Absolutely. Jesus is the point. Now, what's crazy about these two kings, Saul and David, is that there is a king above them, right? There's a king above them. The remembered King David was appointed by an even greater king. And all of that saying, if we get that, we look at the Bible and we understand that, yeah, they were placed there. The Bible says that God put Saul there and the Bible says that God appointed and anointed David. So an even greater king above them appoints them, which tells us what about Saul and David? They are yoked. They're yoked. That means that they are not their own. Their position is not their own. Their regal royalty is not their own. And that is exposed in our hearts and our intentions as we jump from king to king, from throne to throne, as we seek to place on the influential throne of our lives a regal king of our own making. Again, the Build-A-Bear king. Let me elaborate. George MacDonald, a brilliant author who greatly influenced C.S. Lewis, his stuff is outrageous. He said very heavily, there's one central conviction of hell. I am my own. Meaning, this is the one conviction in hell everybody shares. It's the one conviction that birthed hell is what George MacDonald is saying. He goes, I am my own. See, the Bible has a word for this and it's called sin. It's something we all share in common and it's been slithering in our hearts since since the beginning of time when this crazy world started spinning on its axis. When Adam and Eve chose to dethrone God for the very first time. See, we want a king of our own making. We want old kings. We want good-looking kings. This is what Paul is unearthing and exposing to all these people. We want a king of our own making, a king who doesn't determine our choices or our lifestyle, but defers to our choices and our lifestyle. Again, with Saul, they didn't want a king to lead them. They just wanted a king to fit in. Reject the good king for a king which is more like an accessory. Well, I don't want you, God. I'll take, I'll take that flashy one. See, one of the major differences, and hear me, there's only one of the major differences between, I would say, Christians and the vast majority of unchristians is that Christians believe and have grown in awareness that we have rejected 
hated and are enemies and were enemies of God. See, one of the most brilliant minds ever produced was a man named Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a book on the subject which just says it all. He just titled it, Men Naturally Are Enemies of God. See, mankind doesn't simply just believe in God. The Bible would show us that our natural reaction towards him is hatred. Power with these words I'm going to read to you to a church in Colossae, the very Paul who's preaching this heavy, heavy message. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's what I find so fascinating. If there's anybody who follows or is fans of or reads or, or whatever, the new neo, uh, neo-new atheism, Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, I find it so fascinating as people now dialogue with them, what makes them so new and so unique? They are driven by hatred. You could look at the, the atheist of old, they go, yeah, we disagree, but these men are driven by something else. They are driven, driven, driven by hatred of this make-believe God, they would say, and the foolish people who follow it. Men naturally are enemies with God, the Bible would say. Men naturally searching for a new king. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This is where everything sort of picks up for, for Paul. And that message is verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Read with me for a moment. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled. Imagine Paul saying this to us. God has fulfilled this to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Then he goes on, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more return to corruption. He has spoken this way. I will give you the more holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, what happened? He fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. That's just one of the greatest sermons in the Bible. It's epic. But I want us to notice something. Notice the type of faith that is being presented. Notice what is laid out before these people that day by Paul, the object of their faith. Notice, it's not writing on you and it's not writing on me. It's not about principles or procedures. It's not about one day going to paradise, even though it's a part of it. It's about a person, a king rather. Too many times for those dabbling in Christianity, like some perhaps here tonight, have heard it preached that Christianity or the gospel or Jesus is way more behavior modification. Well, you need Jesus to, to just change this junk about you. People have heard it preached so many times that Jesus or the gospel is more about a faith that it's just about making us better. But friends, hear me. Please, 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 please hear me. This is so, 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 far from the truth. It's so far from the truth. See, if that is the gospel or the good news that you have been told, that I was told many, many years ago, 
It is a religious lie. One of the very things that King Jesus came to crush was that lie. See, that's guilt-motivated faith rather than grace-motivated faith. See, Paul is not telling them about a king who has come to merely just make us better, but this king has come to make us new. And Paul is telling them, telling us to put our hope in the incorruptible. Look at verse 36. For David fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Basically, David wraps up his sermon. You guys are all high as kites on some old, dead king man. Have you considered... Have you considered, Paul says, the living king? The very one who punched his way out of his own coffin. But how intrinsic is this for us to make a king of our own liking? In him or in her, in that boyfriend. And then what happens? They break up for us or break up with us. Corruption. We so intrinsically make gods or kings out of our career. And then what happens when we lose our job? Corruption. It's so easy for us to make even like out of our children. And then they grow up and they hate us and they move out anyway. Corruption. If our startup flops and flubbers on the ground, corruption. Or even the church, when the church is the glue of our faith and then the church community or pastors fail you, which this church will, I will fail you. And when that happens, corruption, corruption, corruption. But only Jesus is the incorruptible. This is where, that, this is where this, all this heaviness, like I said, gets way beautiful. Paul wants us to be free from the corruptible influences of our life. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He's basically saying all these past offenses exchanged for favor. Your massive debt, Gone for those who believe on Jesus. Verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul is cutting these steel shackles off their ankles. Paul is pleading with the people as I, as a friend, would plead with anybody here right now, throw your livelihood and hope on the incorruptible so that when circumstances come plundering in, you will not be destroyed. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. I don't know about you, but that's the type of God, that's the type of king I want to hand over the keys of my life to. The one who has victory over the scariest thing mankind will ever face. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He alone is what we need, and he alone is more than enough. I think what happens for a lot of Christians over time is, yeah, Jesus, we get it, Casey. And what happens is it becomes Jesus plus, right? It's Jesus plus this, it's Jesus plus that, it's Jesus plus her, it's Jesus plus him. See, if King Jesus is not enough now by himself, then all the treasure in the storehouse, all the emeralds in the palace, all the gold in the kingdom would never satisfy Christ will not gratify the flesh, but he will satisfy the soul. No more going from king to king, influence to influence. 
I encourage you to accept and submit to this truth today if you have not. That he, the king, knows best. That's what it practically means to live under a king, to accept and submit. I remember Job's words. If you guys know about Job, this dude in the Bible who's basically his entire life was one giant dumpster fire. I mean, he had a horrible life. He went to hell and back, but through it, he was able to say these words, acceptance and submission. He was able to say these words. Behold, I go forward, but he, God, is not there. And backwards, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the ways. But he knows the ways that I take when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Even though I can't feel him or figure it out or my world's freaking falling apart, everything sucks right now. I don't see him over here. I don't see him over here. I don't feel him here. I don't feel him here. Job has come to a position and has an unbelievable perspective. And it's only a perspective of a life. It's only a perspective that a life that is thrown on the incorruptible could possibly have. Only a life thrown upon the incorruptible can can spend a life giving instead of taking because we don't need anything other than Jesus. A life where Jesus, or where Jesus was unbelievably mighty, that's we are free to be weak. Our King Jesus was, someone, was somebody, we're allowed to be free to be nobodies because Jesus was extraordinary. We're allowed to be ordinary because Jesus succeeded for us. We are free to fail again and again and again and again and again. We are free to lose because Jesus is our victor. Now, here's my final encouragement. I'll end with this. My final encouragement is simply Paul's final encouragement. Paul's remaining words were this. He's like, beware. Paul says, beware. Hear me, he warned us, warned them to not become what the prophets have been foretelling about forever. So what does he say? You guys, beware. Friends, will you receive or reject the king? Will you stop building our life, your life, on things corruptible? Will we dethrone the other kings and allow Jesus to take his rightful place? Paul's final words. Beware. Therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Will you believe? Pray with me.